another episode of Idea Prov. I'm your host, Mike Pedersen. Um, got a really exciting topic today, but first I gotta introduce uh, my co-creator for the show today. His name is Taylor. We met online and it was a really good conversation, kind of headed off in a lot of the same areas. So Taylor, introduce yourself, let everybody know who you are, what you're about. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Mike. Um, so my name is Taylor Cohn and I am a collaboration designer. Um, and th what that means essentially is um, I like helping groups of people work together uh, better and figure out ways to solve big, complex problems uh, together in kind of more structured, intentional ways and in ways that honestly feel better um, to engage in. Um, and kind of my, my passion is in creating experiences, designing and delivering experiences um, that transform the way people kind of view themselves or the problem that they're, that they're tackling. Um, and like I said, sometimes that means transforming the way teams approach problems together in business or product development, um, things like that. Or um, in my other life, I'm a whitewater rafting guide, and sometimes it means encouraging someone to jump off a rock into the river and uh, popping back up with the biggest smile ever on their face and uh, <laughs> and transforming what they thought they could do. <laughs> I, I got a question that, like, I'm sure from your perspective, that probably never gets old, does it? Just seeing that person so initially apprehensive and then, <laughs> like, just complete glee on the other side yeah not even a little bit i mean it just i can't imagine it ever wearing off it's, it's magic and just i think that knowledge having that knowledge as the guide like knowing that that's going to be the outcome makes it so much easier for me to just encourage with no limits because i know like i've never had anybody jump off land pop back up and be unhappy like everybody is stoked every time they come back up <laughs> and then they're the first one to go do it again <laughs> experience that through others like for example somebody doing it like one time and then they come on it again and like you see them coaxing their their friends or their loved ones or whatever oh, yeah. experience oh yeah. yeah a lot of times it'll be like the person who was most afraid most apprehensive will then become the biggest cheerleader and say, oh, come on, trust me, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad, It'll, you'll love it. <laughs> and then, at, you know, at that point, my job is done. My job is done. Because, you know, if I can create, um, create amplifiers of the message as opposed to being the only source of the message. There was this great TED talk about leadership that um, pointed out that followers do not follow the leader. Followers follow the first follower of the leader, which was a really interesting kind of concept and paradigm shift for how I think about leadership and how I think about modeling, um, you know, modeling behavior and, and encouraging certain behaviors. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny that you, you kind of like, you jump into it because it, it, when, when it's phrased like that, it really kind of makes sense. It resonates like people people follow other people's stories yeah. right and so if you have somebody who's done this hundreds of thousands of times it's like, kind of like yeah okay it's old hat but when your friend tells you about it or when your brother sister uncle whatever tells you about it right. all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more real a little bit more tactful and they're more than welcome to more than willing to probably follow that person because they believe them they trust them totally yeah and you know you're talking about uh 
that that trusting of people and so we kind of want to bring you in because that kind of leads into that collaboration like when you're working together with people and I think that's part of what your segment is so so tell us a little bit about you know what's what's got your attention you know what's what's kind of your passions what's your jam yeah so especially this year with with the way that COVID has affected the world um, you know that the work that I do in the kind of design thinking and innovation space so that's a, you know the work that i do is facilitation and coaching through um, using using design thinking and experimental innovation practices to basically help teams solve problems better together like i said the interesting shift this year has been um sort of accelerating a a shift for me which has been to take a lot of those tools that we've been using um, on projects in the product service business space um, and actually apply those to designing teams and designing how people work together and bringing intention to how people work together. And like I said, with, with the disruption to working together that COVID has brought to the world, um, it's just been amplified. And so I've, I'm working with a lot of teams right now on figuring out in a nutshell, how do we work together remotely? How do we, we have a distributed team. Some teams are hybrid where some folks are in the office, some folks are not. Um, and so the need for intentional design of collaboration rather than just having it naturally occur is, is far more important than, it, than I think it's ever been. But the, but the interesting thing is, I don't think it's only because of COVID. I don't think it's only because of remote work. I am a strong believer in the importance of collaboration design as a, um, as sort of a foundational piece of our work. You know, if we, if we started out by understanding each other a little bit better and understanding strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and kind of collaborative needs and personality styles and all of that, um, and then brought a sort of experimental approach to how we design, how we work together, I think it could really transform the way we work. And that is sort of in a nutshell, um, what my work and my business is focusing on right now. And I run a consultancy called Lightshed um, that basically is kind of going all in right now on collaboration design. And I'm really, really passionate right now to, to help teams just design the way they work together in a better way. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because it's like the world's been flipped on its head, right, for you know, the past X number of months. And so, like, I'm curious because you deal with um, these teams and different companies from all walks of life, how how much of how much is actually more of an emotional change or most more of a personality shift or, or team chemistry versus then the actual physical mechanics of what they do? Yeah. Well, I think I think you highlight a, a really important piece, which is, um, you know, a, an example, I think, is trust building on a team that um, where some people have never met each other. I think that is a really, um, a really powerful shift that and a kind of a, a very human experience that we need to consider as we think about how we work together, because there are a number of people on the teams that I work with who were hired sometime in the last eight or nine months. And we're getting to the point where 
you know, they're, they're coming up on a year potentially of working with this team, never having met anybody in person. Um, and so what does that do to trust? What does that do to understanding one another? What does it do to even just like <laughs> one of the most fascinating, very concrete examples is eye contact is literally impossible right now. And uh, unless it's computer generated eye contact with it, which is probably super weird. I haven't actually tried it myself. Um, but like that to me is just like, there's, there's this barrier to the human connection. And we talk a lot about psychological safety and vulnerability and getting to know each other. Um, and that it just can't happen to the same way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's so different because uh, you pick up on a lot of those nuances, right? That you just, it's extremely difficult to do via a Zoom call, right? The, like yeah. you talked about the eye contact, the body language, the, um, those intangibles that you can perceive in a, in a meeting that is completely changed now. Yeah. Um, do you find people are relatively receptive to it? Do they initially push back? Is it a little bit of both? Yeah, it's um, honestly, I find everybody I've worked with, as long as they have sufficient kind of context and understand kind of what's expected of them, I think that's the big thing on any time people uh, experience a, a workshop or a sprint like the ones that I do. Sometimes, you know, it hasn't always been made super clear why they're there or what they're doing and everything. Once they kind of get context, I think it's safe to say pretty much across the board, people love that they have the space and the opportunity and the permission to actually talk about some of these things and to actually say, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's, here's you know, when we talk about, you know, uh, scheduling meetings, here's why it's hard for me to, you know, be on time every day because maybe one person is juggling the kids at home. One person is going from meeting to meeting. One person has doctor's appointment, like all the different things, um, that influence, um, how we're all showing up right now, uh, that before might not have been quite as welcome to discuss. I think, I think we've reached a point where a lot more of it is okay to discuss. And I think a lot of the sessions that I have enable those conversations to happen um, in a way that doesn't just feel like it's venting and complaining, but it's very design driven and action oriented to say, okay, we're having these conversations because these are opportunities to discover pain points, discover struggles so that we can change them. Now, together, let's design how we might wanna change them. Yeah, and the, I guess I'm sure you probably have you know a fair bit amount of stories of of uh, clients or people that because of the work that you do have found themselves to be more productive and more authentic in the way that they communicate, and I'm mm -hmm. sure that's probably just taken their business to another level, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. Uh, I. I I'm always on the lookout to hear more of the stories of the of the people that I that I work with. But it, it certainly, I mean, it, it, over the summer, um, I, I ran a design sprint that was actually focused on some product opportunities. But we kicked off the prior week with a collaboration design session, and this was for a, an international um, company, um, and. They, we did a collaboration design kickoff basically 
to sort of set the stage, it was, we do that for two reasons. One, to introduce folks to the design method that we're gonna use. It's sort of a, a, a crash course, a two-ish hour crash course, two to three hour crash course in the design method. Um, but it also gives the team an opportunity to kind of get to know each other because a lot of times we cross-pollinate cross-functionally. Um, and from there, they are sort of, they have some context, they're inspired, they're excited about the, the sprint next week. After that session, um, I heard from one of the participants that even even the next day after that collaboration design session, he noticed an, a, a transformation in the way that his team was working together, in how open they were with their ideas and how they were talking to each other, how they were communicating, how they were um, kind of building on each other's ideas. And so there are pretty tangible and immediate effects, which are which is incredibly rewarding for me. Yeah, I mean that's that's why you got into it, right? Like that's yeah. that's the focus, that's the that's the that's the passion, that's the jam. Um, so yeah. um, appreciate you sharing that um, for all you listeners out there. We'll definitely put in all of uh, Taylor's information. So if you want to get in contact with Lightshed, or you want to get involved, um, or bring bring them onto your team, we'll definitely um, put it in the show notes. So that way you guys can get in touch and hopefully make your collaboration a little bit better. So in the spirit of helping people, that kind of brings us, you know, collaboration design that brings us to our theme today, which I spent a lot of time thinking about and and just kind of pondering as I was like taking my walk earlier and uh, just coming out with it that we're thinking about natural disasters or any type of major imp or major altercation that might happen to people, right? So um, maybe it's lack of education, tsunamis, hurricanes, whatever. And then oftentimes after these events happen, humanitarian groups such as the Peace Corps or Red Cross, etc., receive a massive amount of support in times of these crises. You know, the text $10 and, you know, they send $10 to Haiti or whatever the case is. But after that initial outpouring of support, oftentimes things seem to die down, whether it's because of lack of mind, you know, there's other things going on in people's lives. So what Taylor and I are going to kind of talk through today is how can we leverage that initial momentum for a longer, more impactful regrowth in those affected areas? So my first thought with, with this is there's a portion that has to deal with the people's the amount of time or uh, attention that these things get. Right, so oftentimes, like I was talking about, you see the text or it's on TV and stuff like that. Um, potentially just increasing the amount of time that those are prevalent in people's lives and their faces, whether it's their social media feeds or the TV, the media they consume, so that way it feels longer. But then I think another bigger portion of it is maybe looking at how we can spend those initial dollars in a way that's going to not necessarily prevent crises from crises from happening but making it easier to bounce back from in the future things like investing in infrastructure or medical capabilities or um, education and stuff for for students um, does that seem like a fair starting place yeah I think the first point you made is actually um, 
something I th I've been thinking a lot about, even in the uh, in the context of COVID, because at the beginning of it, it was on the news every day. Uh, it, you know, it still is partly because we're in our winter surge, um, but I think that at the beginning, people were people were checking in with each other more. I think about the you know, how are you? How's your family? Is everybody okay? It was sort of the standard intro of calls and Zoom meetings and all of that. And I think it subsided a little bit. And and I think in the context of these disasters that, that we're talking about today, there's something interesting to me about kind of the human behavior element of it. And the, tr honestly, quite amazing capacity that we as humans have for normalizing circumstances after a while once we are once we kind of get used to them that i think kind of applies here too and so to your first point of of how do we make it more in your face if you will for longer after a disaster like this i wonder how we do that how how we address that in a way that is that um, kind of is sensitive to the fact that people tend to normalize things and just kind of get used to them and become desensitized. Yeah, the desensitization is, I've been struggling for a way for people to re-engage, right? To, to kind of, because there's a, there's a certain amount of fatigue that happens, right? After you talk about it for a week, two weeks, three weeks, it's kind of like, ugh, I'm, I'm over it. Um, and to couple with that, I'm, I'm also thinking that there's also people that are clear on the other side of the world that after they hear about it the first, second, third time, it's not in their neighborhood, it's not in their community. Why should I care? You know, and of course, this is an emotional piece and you're not gonna get everybody to care. Um, but it led me to, you know, some of the larger health organizations, right? Like we're talking about the Peace Corps or, or uh, the WHO, World Health Organization. And like, I feel like there's a, a large missed opportunity for them to potentially get in front of more people on a regular basis when times are good. Right, so that way it balances out. So they're not always hearing from people when, hey, you know, there's been a massive hurricane and all these people's families and power have been wiped out and we need you to spend money or time or whatever the case may be. Like, show them the good things that I've been doing too so that way they can stay a little bit more readily engaged with world issues or, or areas, of the, areas of the world so that way they can feel a little bit more entwined with the world population and not so much I shouldn't say not so much in their communities, but more, more worldly, which may make them care a little bit more and, and kind of create a little more lasting impact. Right. So what you're saying is sort of a, how do we cultivate a deeper, more consistent, and I think what you're saying is closer relationship between the exactly. average individual and these larger organizations. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think there's... It, that kind of highlights an interesting question of in order to tackle this this overall theme that we're discussing is 
does it feel, and this might be context dependent, but does it feel like the best approach is to connect people more deeply and closely with organizations or more closely with specific issues? And that I feel like is sort of something that the entire community is grappling with quite a bit. One of the one of the um, organizations that I'm working closely with right now is the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, and they are um, they're sort of in planning. They've been in planning for their 2021 initiatives, and they're basically their their strategy. Um, and these similar themes have have come up. Is like what what did how do we focus our energy? on the highest impact things. And I think that is is one angle that we could take as we explore where the highest impact can be. Yeah, and it's it's those high impact things and and now hearing you talk to to that particular point, you know, I'm thinking is it more advantageous to connect people with those issues with people that are passionate about those issues with the organizations around those issues? And I think it's I mean, you can make a fair point to say all of the above, right? Um, but, you know, like while we we're talking offline, it's like people resonate with people. People follow people. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that follow these large organizations. But oftentimes, I mean, this is this is why the Kylie Jenners of the world have X millions of followers, right? You know, they, on, on their social platforms, because people follow people. So... It partially, you know, leads me to believe if we can get the right people in the front to be, I guess, I don't want to say the spokesperson, but to be the highlighted face of some of these initiatives that could potentially bring about some change. Um, do you think that's reasonable or do you think that people just will care if they want to care? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I mean there's... I think that's a, a, a very classic approach is kind of get somebody that people believe in and trust kind of in the spotlight and and that'll get everybody involved. I I wonder how you, and you, you brought up the point we discussed earlier kind of about that people follow the followers rather than follow the leaders. Um, and I like to think about these things from a, from a systems perspective and and a sort of emergent behavior perspective when you think about systems. And um, I taught a class several years ago on biologically inspired design and how we can learn from ant colonies and um, other superorganisms and ecosystems and all that. Um, and it really kind of solidified an idea for me of, of bottom-up design and how we how we design for the you know the kind of the, the democratic approach of the, the power of the individual, the power of the people, as opposed to a top-down sort of dictatorial approach of making these things happen. And that goes back to that question of bottom up. If and you, you mentioned this too, like if your friends are doing it, you're gonna do it. If your friends care about it, you're probably going to care about it more, especially if you have aligned values with these particular friends. Um, and so my, where my focus goes is even if we do find the kind of the spokespeople to energize people, how do we in parallel cultivate these connections between people who care about 
certain things together because that's where I think the power is kind of again going back to kind of the, the theme of collaboration and the connection between groups of people how do we leverage that for the change that we want to see and that's, that's a good point because it's like how, how do we leverage it and how do we I guess how do we motivate right so what's what's the motivating factor for these people do is it more of a pull push pull type of thing like I mean, shaming people into helping one another is probably not going to be the best way to go. <laughs> um, but incentivizing things. So, of course, in a hypothetical ideological situation, maybe you say, hey, um, for those people that, you know, something happens on the other side of the other side of the planet, you say, you know, if you happen to help, maybe you get a discount on this or a discount on that, right? Just from an actual tangible level, would that actually work? Um, part of me says yes, depending on what the cause is, right? Because you naturally have that whenever you, you know, there's hurricanes and people go through. Um, but I'm wondering how we can leverage it together. For example, maybe it's family units, maybe it's community groups. Do they get discounts for the time that they spend, you know, driving these initiatives home, you know, spreading the word in communities that aren't affected. Um, I guess, how do we mobilize them in a fashion that kind of works? Because you see, because the, the part that I have struggles with sometimes is that you see these, you see initiatives get moved and people get behind it when they have a very polarizing figure, right? So one of course is politics. You go in that realm, people get really behind it, they get really passionate there. Um, you see it on very controversial subjects such as abortion. Um, you see it in very you know, uh, social justice issues like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that. So how can we translate that in which, hey, yes, you know, um, some individual is inappropriately, you know, or I should say, uh, there's some conflict there with the police, and that's a particular individual. But in a couple of countries over, you had entire cities get potentially wiped out, and people are like, oh, what's the score of the Braves game? Like, you know, like, how do we make that correlation to make people as passionate about this one person when it's affecting so many other people over there? I don't know. Yeah, it's, um the the example that you gave of of kind of or you referenced you know shaming people probably isn't the best way to do it but at the same time like the i think there are two two questions that, w that we're kind of zooming in on here one being um how do we get the how do we achieve the outcome that we want and maybe that outcome is you know if we if we have to put a fine point on it maybe it's you know, continuous or regular um, financial inflow to these organizations that we're talking about. So, you know, monthly giving is one of our targets. Um, maybe it's it's an a actual outcome of reduced, you know, reduced natural disaster response time and lives lost, etc. Whatever the actual metric we want. So, you know, question one is how do we reduce that thing and the second question is how do we do that way that feels good or feels right feels just and be because we know that that fear is an incredible driver of human behavior but 
I don't think we want to <laughs> instill fear in people, but in order to, to in order to you know fund the Red Cross or other organizations more, just using that as an example. Um, and so achieving kind of using those two questions as our guardrails, I think is is how I'm starting to think about it. And I don't necessarily know the answers, um, but I, the other <laughs> the other thing that came to my head as you were talking was um, this idea of of almost like a competitive giving where you know if there are two different causes whether you're actually pitting the causes kind of against each other playfully uh for the means of fundraising or other um kind of volunteering whatever the metric again is uh or if you're competing on a different variable of you know uh you know the the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers, like which team can donate more to, to, you know, this disaster relief, et cetera. And there's some, there's some team pride and all of that built in there, um, I think is, a, is another great way to, to bring in more of that, um, that energy. Yeah, that's re that really just kind of got the wheels turning for me because I'm thinking sports teams right people love their sports they'll get behind them but if you did that on a regular basis for charities causes peace corps red cross you name the you name the the cause for it but i'm thinking that could really drive it right so if let's say san francisco giants we'll take that as an example if they come out and say hey we'll match dollar for dollar for every single person who donates one dollar to tsunami relief fund right and then if they get on board and make it like you talk about some type of competitive thing with i don't know the la rams right and they do the same thing and they say hey we're gonna match two dollars for every one for the tsunami relief fund so all of a sudden you have not only the individuals playing a part in it and most people would probably be comfortable giving up a dollar you know but it can raise millions of dollars really quickly and then of course you automatically double it, you know, with the organization matching, and then you could potentially triple it if another organization comes out and says that. It's fantastic from a PR standpoint, I would think, for those companies and those organizations to be a part of. People feel enabled or emboldened to give more because they feel like other people are doing the same thing and their values are aligned with other friends and family and the organization. Um, and you make this a thing all the time. And there's more than, if you, and this is just taking sports teams, right? So you have the, the main four there that you could, you know, expand upon and do this on a regular basis. I mean, if you did this in just, let's just say football or, or, or just basketball and you pick a different major charity or organization a year, it could be millions of dollars that are honestly probably gonna be tax-free for the organization, so they're gonna be happy with it. <laughs> and then if you do it in a crowdsourcing type of format, it's gonna be relatively light on the pockets of the individual as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's so funny, what this is all bringing up for me too is, um, is this question of, obviously we're focusing very much on raising money and people donating money. And um, I think, there are so many different ways this direction, this uh, so many different directions this conversation could go. I mean, we could start we could start talking about how do we how do we make it so these handful of organizations aren't 
the primary means of of fixing these these disasters how do we enable and empower communities around the world to have the resources that they actually need to do this and how do we make sure that you know the the world economy is such that that everybody has what they need i mean we could go in a million different directions what's coming up for me right now is there's a book uh that i think is really really powerful really interesting and and change the way I view some of these these issues too and it's called doing good better and it's it's essentially about um, kind of philanthropy and giving and how to do that in kind of the most actually effective way and what's the way that it approaches the the topic is by largely focusing on what is the delta in quality of life for the people that um, that your dollar is going toward, um, and because obviously one of the big struggles with with fundraising too is people wanting to know, okay, where's my money going? You know, is it how much of it is going to administrative fees, and how much of it is going to this, how much of it is going to that? Which there is some there's some good reason to ask those questions, um, and also I think they're probably a little bit overemphasized but that's a whole other topic um but this question of um what is the overall impact on human quality of life for a given action whether that action is a donation or a volunteering hour or whatever the case may be can what is the life quality unit per invested unit um and I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about all this. And one of the ways that it, I mean, it, one of the really interesting conclusions from the book was basically, if you want to focus on, like it, it, it actually calls into question the idea of donating during disasters, because those, largely the organizations that are responding to those things, um, kind of, they have a lot of what they need already um, to respond to those things. Um, but there are other things that are going on every single day, like malaria is one of the biggest killers in the world. And the, the, the AMF, I think it's the Anti-Malaria Foundation, um, I might be getting that wrong. Um, they basically say, if you want your money to affect the quality of life for the most people per dollar, donate to that and nothing else forever. <laughs> like until malaria is eradicated, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that is just such an interesting way to just sort of throw all of this kind of out the window and think about it in a completely new way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so crazy, like, you know, that you that you brought up because it's like, I knew about the, a little bit about the malaria thing and then I forgot it was either last year or um, the year before. I was, I just went down like a rabbit hole of a couple of articles and, and uh, news programming and found out that there's still legitimately people being like captured and sold as slaves in like Sudan. I was like, really? This, this is still a thing? Like a massive genocide and people just getting wiped out. And it's kind of like, you know, you don't see it, you don't hear about it. Yeah, it is depressing, but it's kind of like, this is 2018, 19, like, as a human race, we should be better th than this, you know, you would think. Um, but mobilizing those people to, to, to focus in, and I think you, you touched on an excellent point, which is 
bringing that transparency to the equation, right? So when people are, are donating or whatever, even if it's just from a financial aspect, to see what that changed, what that dealt, what did, where did your particular dollar go? And even if it's that broken down regionally, um, maybe it's broken down by state, or even if it's something as simple as some type of algorithm or app or something that says, hey, if you're texting in $10, your $10 went towards buying a medical kit that was provided to Josie in Kenya that whatever. So that way people can attach a life story. They can attach a, a picture or something um, with it. So that way it feels more authentic rather than dumping you know your money into this big bucket in which like you said could get sucked up by administrative fees and people mm -hmm. embezzling money and all this kind of stuff <laughs> there's that too yeah never, yeah <laughs> you know, people just taking their, their hands in the pot so um i want to pivot to uh, a um a thought and just kind of get your your feedback as to how do you think when these these items do occur how do we position ourselves to increase the growth in that area on a more long-term basis? You know, like the like, where do we focus the our efforts? Whether it's either financially or from a time perspective, or from a just overall humanitarian, like how do we? How does that particular affected area bounce back better, stronger, faster? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good uh, it's a really good question, and my my mind comes at it from from a designer's perspective. I mean, I think I think about it um, from the perspective of okay, great, this happened. Let's do uh, you know a, a post mortem, if you will. Okay, this disaster happened. What led to it? or what led to it being as bad as it was, because there are a lot of things we can't control because they're natural disasters or weather related or whatever, but we might be able to say, okay, how can we make sure that it's not this bad again? How can we make sure that we don't lose power for you know, three and a half weeks and make that shorter as, as an example? So kind of doing almost a root cause analysis on these disasters and then addressing those things, I think would be a really good use of our of our time and energy uh, rather than kind of focusing on getting it back to where it was and then and then shipping back home and calling it a day. That to me is 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 one way that I would love to see things more consistently be different. Yeah, and focusing because I know like for example they did that in um after Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. right down and whatever they they started looking at the levees and how they broke and all those kinds of things. Yep. They kind of did a little bit of a retroactive, like, hey, let's make sure that this doesn't happen again. Now they've also gotten hit with three different hurricanes this year, but hopefully everything is a lot better than Katrina was. Um, but diagnosing that root cause, the disasters, and building back better, um, and I would just kind of piggyback on top of that because I feel that there's a lot of um, things that kind of get lost when those items happen right so whether it's a far-off country or just hurricanes things like underdeveloped countries like the roads might have potholes all over so all of a sudden EMTs first responders and whatever are on their way to help out families and communities mm -hmm. but they catch a flat tire on the way 
Like, mm -hmm. so fixing the roads and things like that will make things a whole lot better. Um, in addition to that, you look at like hospital and bed staff. Well, after every particular patient, they have to like clean up and do like that. So investing in the gear and not only the, for example, the PPE to protect them against stuff, but then also the equipment to help maybe cleaning and sanitizing afterwards so that way they can see patients faster um, whenever they go to the hospital. So it's those kind of underlying infrastructure areas. Right. Um, it could also be just the communication, you know, telling people how to get fresh water or get fresh food or get medical supplies in an area that might not have cell towers. Like how is that information getting out? If it's going person to person, word to word of mouth, it's gonna take a little while. Like maybe it's a public radio network or some type of speakers to blast around the city. Whatever the case is, there's, you know, I think those underlying um, opportunities there mm -hmm. to be better equipped to do things faster and more cohesively. Yeah, for sure. And and same thing uh, to build on that. The same th same thing happened here in California with the wildfires in the Bay Area for the last few years uh, to varying degrees. But this year, one of the things that they started doing was um, they expanded kind of the evacuation orders in terms of making them, um, they kind of made them, made the evacu evacuation orders or at least the warnings come out sooner so that uh, because Last year, I believe one of the one of the issues they had was they waited until a little bit too late, and so the roads were all full, and so of people evacuating, and so the kind of fire trucks and other emergency staff had trouble getting where they needed to go, um, and so that's another thing where because of when we, you know, when we responded, when we figured out what to do, maybe it was too late. To, to do it in the way that we wanted to. So, I, I mean, all those ideas I think are, are, are really solid. And again, going back to the kind of human behavior piece, how do, you, how do you leverage what we understand about how people make decisions about themselves and about each other and do these things in a way that, that kind of acknowledges those things so we're not kind of designing something that's that's never gonna actually happen the way we design it. Like, we have to be realistic. And to, to potentially solve or attack that, is it a matter of designing test potential experiments and, and getting and putting um, those decision makers in, I don't wanna say a crisis mode, mm -hmm. but in a hypothetical mode in which X happens or Y happens and, and this right. is shut off and that is shut off and, and how we go about it so that way we can design a model that's in the best interest of the people based on the decisions that are coming from yeah and i think i think i think back to the the former pandemic response team that that the u.s had before trump disbanded it and i believe that we had kind of a we had we had simulated a pandemic coming to this country and the world um and we kind of had a sense of, okay, we'd run through that scenario and run through a number of other scenarios of what might happen if it happened in a, in different ways. And of course that was disbanded and we didn't have access to that. And we have a lot of folks in, in leadership right now who we don't, we don't have to go there. Um, but 
I think having the, like exactly what you said, having having these plans running through these scenarios, having run these experiments and saying, okay, what would happen if we tried this? What would happen if we tried this? What would happen if we tried this? And that way, when we actually do it, it's not the first time we're trying it. Yeah, because I feel like oftentimes this isn't, it's really easy for this to get put on the back burner yeah. for people. It's never gonna be top of mind. You know, why, why am I worried about a fire in my building when there's never been a fire? And then all of a sudden, right. like, there's a fire and you don't know what to do because you've never role played this. Um, so finding those decision makers and, and putting it in and making time for that and finding a way to, I guess, initialize those, uh, those decision makers in the process to say, hey, this is important for us. We, need, we want to be able to have this actionable plan ready to go that's not necessarily fail safe because a lot of it is improvised, but um, able to be executed that we're gonna feel comfortable with the decisions that were made and the plan is gonna be impl implemented mm -hmm. in a time of crisis. Yeah, what, what that brings up for me is a, is a quote, I think I saw it attributed to the Navy SEALs. It was something like, um, in a crisis or in, in a time of stress, you we don't rise to the occasion you sink to your training and and like wherever you set your kind of baseline training level that in most cases is probably going to be as good as you're going to do and so i think understanding that and emphasizing the importance of practicing and understand and like knowing how to respond in those moments is is like that changes everything yeah and i'm sure there's gonna be plenty of people who are like well this is what those those people get paid the big bucks to do right like this this is why they come up but at the same time i also like to look at these people and say they are human right and they need practice conditioning you know all the information just like everybody else if we expect them to make high quality decisions and that also means enabling them and training them and not to be, what's the word, uh, kind of lax mm. in their ability to be prepared. Like right. all shapes, like not only focusing on just, hey, business and economy and those type of things, but hey, in the, in the matter of crisis, we need to be ready to go as yeah. well. Definitely. Cool. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're kind of close on it. so. Um, I tell you what, what I'm going to do now is just kind of run through a couple of the um, ideas and high-level stuff that we came came across, and then let me know if I miss anything. Sounds good. All right. So when we talk about having a lasting impact for um, humanitarian efforts, domestic and abroad, we can look at adjusting what the normalization or normalizing circumstances are. Um, connecting people with the issues that they are passionate about to drive a more long, substantiated um, relief process. We have to identify what that, what our intended success goal looks like. So we have to f identify, hey, what do we want this to be? We want it to be better than it was before, but we have to identify that so that way we actually have a legitimate goal that people can work towards. We can come across initiatives like competitive giving 
which could mean organizations pairing and matching individuals doing the same thing with friends and family um, and kind of create a network that can assist financially in a, in a way that's going to be engaging for people um, on a regular basis. We need to make sure that we have as much transparency as possible in um, the money and financial donations that we have so that way people can feel comfortable in donating their, their money, especially so that way we can tell a story with where their money is going so that way they feel like it's not getting tied up in just bureaucratic stuff. We have to dissect the root cause of some of the disasters um, so that way we know where to focus our efforts and then also assist in focusing our efforts on the underlying or the supporting factors for those causes as well. So things like the infrastructure, the communication, um, things of the medical supplies and not just, hey, let's pump money into it, but what are the resources, teams and people that help facilitate that particular initiative going in that direction. And then last but not least, we have to identify what the most viable product is in these scenarios and be equipped with our leaders and decision makers and the training and tools necessary to be effective in driving long-term change. Sound good? I think you nailed it. <laughs> Sweet. That was, um, that was fun. Taylor, I got to say, this is this has been super profound for me because this has been something that's personally I've, I've tried to figure out a way why this why you know people behave and um, operate in this fashion. So I, I think this is going to be something a lot of people are going to be able to get some real value from. So I appreciate your time and being able to share your your insights and 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 thought patterns with us. It's been a pleasure. I, it's uh, it's always fun to just uh, to just talk and see where it goes. And I really enjoyed how much ground we covered. So uh, thanks for having me on, and I look forward to talking more. Awesome. Well, everybody, um, thank you. I appreciate your time and listening today. And uh, stay tuned after the break for our Idea Prob Insight. Hey, for this Idea Prop Insight, I want to share with you how to get smarter every day. So according to neuroscience, there's two major forms of uh, intelligence. One is crystallized, which is your standard two plus two equals four, your educated book smarts. And then there's also another one that's called fluid intelligence. This is when you become uncomfortable and are able to create new neural pathways in your brain by solving complex issues. So I thought I would share because I think it would be really interesting for, um, for everybody to try and do this every day. So the key is to kind of stay uncomfortable, build some new pathways in your brain, which will help you solve problems later on. Um, add your feedback on the, on the website and we'll talk to you soon.